Amen. Merry Christmas to you. Glad you're here on this Christmas Eve Sunday. Am I on? I feel like I'm gaining power. There we go. This is trouble for you. I'm just going to get louder and louder, I guess. Dylan, I don't know what they paid you to wear that suit, son, but you look good. I'd never seen a guy walk in with a white suit, and we were singing, and he walked in in a white suit. Roger that. I hope if you travel, if you go out of town, if folks are coming to you that it's a good holiday season, it is free from stress, as much as it can be, and you enjoy yourselves. The Christmas season is an opportunity for families to gather together around shared beliefs. That's the beauty of Christmas. I don't know how and what our traditions are in our church, and so I'm always careful. Uh, we have allowed, and there's little ears in here, but so I'll be careful. We have allowed our boys to believe in the jolly old soul, and we try to make sure they understand that he's not real while Jesus is. And so this week we were coming home from the Southern Lights, and our youngest is nine, and he's probably past the time of thinking and being in that mode. The other two are clear of it completely. But as we're coming home, I said, hey, did you send your list to Santa? And Luke said, I sent it to her already. Jessica and I in the front seat, our eyes got this big, and apparently that's Nanny. And I thought, well, what am I, chopped liver? <laughs> right? And I thought, what is my dad? He must be chopped liver. Listen, Grandma gets the same treatment. We couldn't figure out if it was my mom or Jessica's mom, but the point is, she got it, whoever she was. So I hope you have a good week, good celebration, good times together. Of course, we have no service this evening. We will be back together in regular worship in the midweek on Wednesday. Take your Bibles, turn to Isaiah chapter 9. We'll continue in our series, God With Us, that we've been looking at over the last couple Sundays since Thanksgiving. And today we're looking at the Everlasting Father. Isaiah 9, beginning in verse number 6, the Bible says, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Of the increase of His government and peace, there shall be no end. Upon the throne of David and upon His kingdom, to order it and to establish it with judgment and with justice from henceforth, even forever. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. Father, help us as we now come to the Word of God. It is through the living Word of God, Jesus Christ, that any of us has hope. It's the reason we gather together. It's why, as a body of believers, we are united. And it is at this season that we are reminded that you took on human flesh, that you became one of us. We are mindful, Lord, that these names that we have read were given 700 years before Jesus ever came to earth, before the full plan of redemption and salvation was known. But they speak perfectly to who He is and what He's done for us. Bless us, I pray, in this hour as we come to the Word of God. May we come with open hearts and ready minds to see the truth of the Word of God. Bless in this hour, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. 
Jesus, the wonderful incarnate Emmanuel. Jesus, our counselor with both purpose and plan. Jesus, the mighty God, as we studied last week, helping us overcome the challenges that life throws at us and helping us to make right choices every day of our lives. We come then this morning to Jesus, the everlasting Father. Huh? We might say. I thought there was God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit. There are. Each of them are persons of the Godhead. So what is Isaiah telling us? What does God want us to know from this passage? What is the thought that we should draw from this? Is he transitioning back to talking about God the Father and His perfection? And the answer is no. These names are attributed and assigned to Jesus Himself. Jesus is God the Son, yet in His character and in His conduct, as we will see today, today He is to us very much a Father. The Hebrew phrase here is two words. It could justifiably be read and justifiably be rendered in this passage, the Father everlasting. It could read the God Almighty, the Father everlasting, the Prince who is peace. That's how all three of these names that are multiples could be read as you come to this in the Hebrew Bible. The Hebrew word literally here, or the phrase literally is ab-ad. Sometimes it would be great if we all spoke Hebrew because it's a lot shorter language for us to know and understand. Ab-ad is what we come to. It's tricky to say, but it's very easy for us to understand. We can only conclude then that Jesus is in some fashion our Father. And so we set out this morning to investigate how Jesus is the Father everlasting to us who believe. Let's deal this morning with uh, add first, everlasting, and then we'll deal with Ab or Abe or Abba, excuse me, Father. Coming into our notes, and you can see I'm jumping right in because it's a full sermon this morning. There's a lot to cover, and it's Christmas. Nobody really wants to listen past about 15 to 20 minutes today. So I will cover quite a bit of ground as we look at these topics. We come first to the fact that He is forever. The word everlasting, add, as it would be pronounced. The word ad in the Hebrew means from ancient into the present now and beyond into the future. Throughout the whole progression of time, it could equally mean this word ad. The word would be appropriate or it would be appropriate to say of this word that ad means before time began, when time began, throughout the whole of time as it ran, and when time is over, it will continue. That's what it means Add. That's what everlasting means as it's used here in the Hebrew. God the Son, the Messiah of Israel, the Son given, the child that was born, is, Isaiah here is telling us, eternal. Amen. He is not just from a point and forever. He is forever in the past, forever in the future, and in including right now. These are concepts that are sometimes deep, but it's good for us as Christians to stretch our spiritual mind. Three aspects then of this word that we obviously can note. First, letter A in our outlines, he was always there in the past. This is what this passage is telling us. God, the Son's original state was that of creator. He was present at the moment of creation because he is eternal like the Father. 
Genesis 1 and verse 1 says this, in the beginning, God. That word God there is Elohim. It means plural. It is a plural noun. It means that there was a pluralistic God, three in person, who was there in the beginning, and they, in a joined fashion, created the heaven and the earth, the Bible says. If you were to fast forward to the very beginning of the divine perspective in the New Testament, the Gospel of John, Matthew and Mark show us of Christ the perfect king, Christ the perfect servant. Luke tells us of Christ the perfect man. John tells us Jesus Christ was perfectly God in the whole of its gospel. And that gospel, from God's divine perspective, begins this way. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Let me pause for a moment and keep this verse on the screen. Jesus then is the one is one of the persons, excuse me, making up the plural noun that we just saw back in Genesis 1 and verse 1. So Elohim God, Jesus is described for us in John chapter 1 and verse 1. He is one of those persons that makes up that plurality. If we go on to verse number 2 and 3, the same was in the beginning in verse 3. With God, all things were made by him, and without him was not anything made that was made. He was the creator of all things. He was already there in the past. It's pretty obvious then that Jesus was the voice of creation. If you were to stay in Genesis 1 and keep reading, you would find after the creation account, or in the process of each of those days, the Bible says, and God said. Jesus is that voice that is speaking as we understand creation's story. There's one more passage that tells us of Jesus being not only present but active before time began, when light was first created. Colossians 1 and verse 15 through 17 says this, of Jesus, who is the image of the invisible God. We've talked about this many times in preaching throughout the years here. That word image here and in the book of Hebrews has the idea of icon. He's the expression. You have your phone, you pull up an app, and you push the button. The program somewhere deep in the recesses of your phone is activated because of the icon, the image that you see on the surface. Christ then was the expression of who God is. He's the firstborn of every creature. Jesus is the human form representation of all of the Godhead. Thus, he is the foremost created thing. He is the chief preeminent essence of creation. Martin Luther said this, the reformer of old. He says, the mystery of the humanity of Christ, that he sunk himself into our flesh, is beyond all human understanding. We continue reading in Colossians 1 and verse 16, and it says, For by him were all things created. This one Jesus Christ, that are in, the, in heaven, that are in earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones, whether they dominions or principalities or powers, all things, everything was created by him. And notice the next phrase, and for him. And he is before all things. By him, all things consist. You get the idea that this everlasting father that Jesus is, the forever nature of him is not that he was born and began to exist that morning in that manger. No, he existed far before that. In fact, in discussion, debate really, with the Pharisees, in John chapter number 8, they have 
brought a woman to him. He has exonerated her from being stoned, though he has never forgiven her, if you will, uh, of the crimes that she committed. He does forgive her sin. He says, go and sin no more. As the Pharisees and Jesus continue to talk, Jesus does a lot of discussion about who their father is, and they claim that their father is Abraham. He tells them in chapter 8 and verse 44, you are of your father, the devil. But down in verse number 58, here's what Jesus says to him, and it literally explodes the mind of the religious thinker. Because he tells them, I am before your creation. Here's what he says in John 8 and verse 58. Jesus said unto them, verily, verily, or truth of truth, I say unto you, before Abraham was, I am. If we know the Bible at all, we know that statement of I am is very powerful and very purposeful. Jesus was not haphazardly throwing out a statement of I am to a crowd or an audience that wouldn't understand it. The Pharisees would understand who the great I am was. Jesus' claim is to the Pharisees here that were disputing his uh, divinity is emphatically I am. I am it means the self-existent one, the one who has no beginning, the existence without cause or without origination. In other words, what he declares to them is I am that God that led you out of Egypt. That's who Jesus is. By the way, that's quite bold if you're not really God. There's an old statement, and we do it in our discipleship as you go through. Jesus was either a lunatic, a liar, or he is Lord. And if you're here this morning and you don't know Jesus Christ as your Savior, you have to look at Jesus Christ in one of those three ways. He is either a lunatic and out of his mind. He is a liar trying to deceive you. Or he is, in fact, Lord God of heaven. He's the great I am. And so he's always been there in the past. Letter B in our notes, he is always here in the present. It's not as if Jesus finished his work and said, all right, I'll be back to get you someday. It sounds like a Christmas song there. He'll be back again someday. (laughs) That's how many people look at Jesus. We ought not. He is here present with us. The great passage that always helps me to understand the presence of our Savior with us is Hebrews 13, verses 5 and 6. Well, the writer of Hebrews, I should say, says this, Let your conversation be without covetousness. And be content with such things as ye have. You say, oh, that's a good passage for Christmas time. It is. For he hath said, I will never leave thee nor forsake thee. So that we may boldly say, the Lord is my helper. He is ever present with me to help me. And I will not fear what man shall do unto me. If our greatest need, friend, had been information, God would have sent an educator. If our greatest need had been technology, God would have sent us a scientist and innovator. If our greatest need had been money, he would have sent us an economist. If our greatest need had been pleasure, God would have sent us an entertainer. But our greatest need was forgiveness, so he sent us a savior. He was present there in that body. It's not that God's divinity came and went upon that baby Jesus. He was fully God and fully man. He is everlasting. He is forever. Joseph receives the message from the angel in Matthew 1. And in verse 20, the Bible says this, But while he thought on these things, what was he thinking on? The news that his espoused wife was pregnant outside of his involvement. He had a lot to think about. 
While he thought on these things, behold, the angel of the Lord appeared unto him in a dream, saying, Joseph, thou son of David, fear not to take unto thee Mary thy wife. For that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Ghost. And she shall bring forth a son, and thou shalt call his name Jesus. Why? For he shall save his people from their sins. When the angels come to the shepherds in Luke 2 and verse 10, they say, Fear not, for behold, we bring good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior. There it is again. He's our helper, which is Christ the Lord. God the Son's present state, we could say, is not so much creator, but Savior in this age that we live. The third way in which we understand Him in our New Testament times of being the everlasting, the ad, the forever, is that He will always be in perpetuity. He will always be present. There will never be a time into eternity where Jesus Christ, God the Son, will not exist, will not be with us. The great passage of Scripture on this is Revelation 21 and 22, the end of it all, we might say. What is life like when the world evaporates? Peter tells us that literally this world is going to melt with fervent heat. This creation, this existence, this substance is going to be dissolved to its very atomic level. How, why God does that, I don't know, but he does it. And in Revelation 21, the Bible says this, and I saw a new heaven and a new earth. But the first heaven and the first earth were passed away and there was no more sea. And he that sat upon the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. And said unto me, Write, for these words are true and faithful. And he said unto me, It is done. I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give unto him that is a thirst of the fountain of the water of life freely. He that overcometh, or he that is victorious, he that is here hearing these words, you might say, he that overcometh shall inherit all things, and I will be his God, and he, Jesus speaking here, shall be my son. In chapter 22, we continue to read of this eternal state, what life is like after the world is gone. In verse number one, the Bible says, And he showed me a pure river of water of life, clear as crystal, proceeding out of the throne of God and of the Lamb. Notice, the Lamb is equal with God, seated upon a throne. It's not like this is one throne with two names. It is two thrones of God and of the Lamb. In verse number three, And there shall be no more curse, but the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it, and his servants shall serve him, and they shall see his face, and his name shall be in their foreheads, and there shall be no night there, and they need no candle, neither light of the sun. For the Lord God giveth them light, and they shall reign forever and ever. I love the fact that the river of life proceeds out of the throne of God and of the Lamb. We see all three persons of the deity, all three persons of the Godhead. The Holy Spirit is that river of life and he flows out from God and he flows out from the Lamb. And what will life be like for the rest of eternity? I don't know, but it will be with Jesus. That's fantastic. He is forever. There is a great opportunity on this Christmas Eve then to reflect on the reality of the eternal, 
unbounded God the Son, choosing to wrap himself in temporal, mortal flesh just to redeem you and me. There's a lot to think about on this Christmas Eve. Jesus never gave up his eternality, according to Isaiah. It's just that for a season he was clothed with mortality. He never lost his divinity as he walked this earth, but rather the everlasting father became an infant child. Think on that for a second. The whole reason was to rescue, to redeem, and to reconcile our race to the divine, to God. Christmas is certainly about gifts, but the focus should be on the greatest gift that has ever been given, and that is the gracious gift of Jesus Christ himself, God the Son, who came to die for your sins. Now, I often struggle to how I depict this concept. I always want you to leave church understanding what the Bible says. And wouldn't you know it, math always gives us the answer. Are there any math nerds in here? All right, you're bold enough to answer, the four of you. Okay, I'm not going to make you do a math problem. Some of you are like, well, I would put my hand up, but you might be asking me to do a calculus problem. No, it's, it's Christmas Eve. I'm not going to be that mean, all right? Let's start with the first picture in this chart here. Jesus is there in the past, the present, and the future. Mathematically, we can demonstrate the eternality of God the Son versus His momentary humanity by starting with the concept of a line. How many in math know what this is? This is a line. What is a line? A line has no beginning. A line has no end. And so when you write it on your homework paper, kids, for your parents or for your teachers, you have to write the little thing that we call a line. And at either side, you have to put the arrow pointing either direction. And what it tells you mathematically is it could go forever that way and it could go forever that way. That's what it means to be eternal. There is no Beginning, there is no end. Well, Jesus, when he became human flesh, became a segment. This is what a segment looks like. I think, Drew, the next one, yes. You say, well, that's very boring. Mathematically, it's ingenious. He had a beginning and he had an end. There was a day that Jesus was born. There was a day that Jesus died. The Bible tells us that all of us that walk this earth will have a day that we're born and we have a day that we're died. It's appointed unto man once to die and after this the judgment. Jesus lived sinlessly and died vicariously. That means for you and for me. The sinless nature allowed him to die for our sins. So that tells us there was a beginning point and an ending point. Now, the great thing about Jesus is the segment should then become a ray. Now, put the rays up there, Drew. I'm testing, by the way, my son to see if he knows his math. Now, you say you've got a lot of little rays on that picture. Yes, because one of them in the middle of the line, that's Jesus. From the day he was resurrected, you say, well, he never stopped existing. That is correct. But his perfect body, when he comes out of the grave in the resurrection, he says, don't touch me. I've not gone to my father yet. He was in his perfection. And in his perfection, he will never end. He will never have to die again. He died once for sin, the Bible says. Once in the end of the world, he died once for sin. He doesn't have to die over and over again for your sin and mine. He died once for sin. And the lines that are not Jesus represent you and me. 
I'm the line on the bottom and you might be the line on the top or maybe you're older than me and you're the line to the right getting closer to eternity. But that is a mathematical representation of what we just talked about. Jesus has always been in the past. He is always here in the present and he will always be here in perpetuity in the future. This is who Jesus was, is and always will be. What a God we serve from the word of God we learn. This brings us then to our second thought and our second word. Ad means forever, in the past, in the present, and into the future. Ab, A-B, means he is our father. Jesus is forever, but Jesus is our father. Now, of the two concepts I'm teaching you this morning, this might actually be the more confusing. (laughs) I mean, eternity, we can just kind of go... I can't think of it. My brain hurts. I can't handle it anymore, right? That may be what you're thinking this morning, if you're still thinking with me, right? But now I'm telling you the son is your father. The answer is that's true from the word of God. Let's understand it. There are three persons of the Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. In Isaiah 9 and verse 6, God tells us that Jesus will be a father to us. While a bit confusing, we can easily make sense of it as we come to the New Testament teaching. The first thing that we must understand as to how he fulfills the role as father to us as believers is this. He is a father progenitor. He is the one that we are born of. Yes, the Spirit of God does the regenerative work in our lives, but it's the work of Jesus Christ on the cross of Calvary, and more importantly, His resurrection, that allows us to be new creatures created in Christ Jesus, the Bible tells us. The word ab literally means the immediate progenitor. Some of you don't know what a progenitor means. It just means the person who originated you. I'll give you an example. I am Drew, Nate, and Luke's progenitor. I'm their father. I can make a great joke like we did when Luke was born and say, Luke, I am your father, right? But the point is, I am Luke's father. Ron is my father. He's my progenitor. Edward was Ron's progenitor, and Nelson Fannin was Edward's progenitor. That's as far back as I can go. I'm now in the late 1800s. I don't know how far you can go, but I can make it that far. We understand the concept of a progenitor, even though we don't use the name. But that's who Jesus is for all of us who are sons of God. A progenitor is a person from which another person originates. Jesus, then, is the believer's progenitor. This is what Isaiah says he will come to do. He will make, effectively, a new race. The authority and the government that he has is not over the sinfulness of this world. It is the saints who put their faith and trust in him. He will order and establish that kingdom, Isaiah 9 and verse 7. Well, here's the Bible in the New Testament explaining this. John chapter 1 and verse 12, the Bible says, But as many as received him, the him here is Jesus, to them gave what? What's the word? He power to become the sons of God. That is a powerful progeneration. I think I made that word up, but he's the powerful progenerator generator here. He's the one that makes us new. To them gave he power or the authority. The word power here is exousia in the original language. It has the idea of having the authority to say, I'm a son of God. Well, who gave you that right? My father, Jesus, we could rightly say. To become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name, which were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, 
nor of the will of man, but of or through God himself. Jesus is the one being received in this verse. Jesus is the he. He's the one that gives authority and permission for believers to become the sons of God. He said this often throughout his earthly sojourn. John 3 and verse 16, we all can quote that. I always do a good, easy verse on Christmas in case you've never been to church before. You can now say, I knew one of the ones the guy gave me. Here it is. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever does what? Believeth in him should not perish, should not die, but have everlasting life. Look, that is generation, if you will. Jesus, by the way, said this to Nicodemus, having just explained to Nicodemus that to enter the kingdom of God, Nick must be born again. He literally said that to him. And Nicodemus asked him, can I crawl back in my mama's belly and be born that way? He said, no, you have to be born of water and of the spirit. You have to have a natural birth and you have to have a spiritual birth. Once you have passed from this life without Jesus Christ, there is no opportunity for spiritual birth. It's over. But if you are alive today, you can become alive in Christ so that he can be your everlasting father. To Martha, Jesus said this as he stood ready to raise her brother Lazarus from the dead. In John 11 and verse 25, Jesus said unto her, I am the resurrection and the life. He that believeth in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And whosoever liveth and believeth in me shall what? Never die. Do you believe that? That's what Jesus asked. <laughs> Believest thou this? Believe in Jesus, believing in Jesus Christ causes us to be born again, not of corruptible seed. Peter said it this way in 1 Peter 1 and verse 23. Being born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible. By what? The word of God. Who is the word of God? Jesus, the Logos, the living word. John chapter 1 and verse 1 we just read. Which liveth and abideth forever. There's the ad with the Abba. There it is again. Isaiah 9 verses 6. The name, the everlasting father. He fathers us into the family. There is a paternal and fraternal relationship with Jesus Christ. That means he parents and is also our sibling. You say, man, it's starting to get real confusing. It's not that hard. It's just divine. Galatians 4, verses 4, 5, and 6 say this, But when the fullness of time was come, God sent forth His Son, made of a woman, made under the law, to redeem them that are under the law, that we might receive the adoption of sons. We are part of the family. And as a result, and because ye are sons, God hath sent forth the Spirit of His Son... John 14, John 16, the Spirit was sent forth, the Spirit of Christ, because He returned to His Father. Into your hearts, you new children of God, crying what? Abba. That is the same word that is used in Isaiah 9 and verse 6. By the way, the same word and the same thought would be given to us in Romans chapter 8 and verse 15 as well, if we read that. We are heirs with Him, brothers, but we cry Abba to him. Oh, yes, we commune with God the Father and we talk to him as our Father. Jesus, when he teaches us to pray, says, We say, Our Father, our, our, our Ab, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. 
But Jesus is the one who did the work of bringing many sons to glory, according to Hebrews 2 and verse 10. Thus, our relationship to him is as our progenitor father. Consider this comparison from really a rough understanding of John chapter 8 and verse 44. There are those who are the sons of Satan. Here's a picture or a graph of what they look like. Those who are of the dragon, the serpent, the devil, they're lying. They're filled with hatred. They have darkness and they have death. Nobody wants to be in that family. But all of us are born into that family. We are sons of Satan. We are sons of Adam. We are sons of the flesh. And there's two events that we celebrate every year. It's Christmas and Easter. And the next slide shows us that. It is the cradle and the cross. If we want to move from the family that is on that left side and get out of that Adamic race, that damned and doomed, condemned people already. We have to understand the importance of the cradle, God came in the flesh, that led him to the cross so that he would die for your sins and mine. And it brings us ultimately to become sons of God. This is what that group looks like. We are sheep of his pasture. We're honest. We're humble. We are light and we have life. What a comparison to the old people. And some of us are like, man, I'm living a little bit on the left side. And I should say to you, you should want to live on the right side. But the only way you live on the right side is recognize that Jesus came in the cradle, in the manger, so that he could go to the cross to die for you. If you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ as your Savior, then you, friend, are in the column on the right. You ought to start acting like it. Your father expects it. The way we live and behave proves our true paternity, you might say. It proves that we have been born again into the family of God, that we are new creatures created in Christ Jesus unto good works. Jesus brings us into the family of God. He is our progenitor. Next, we note that he is our father provider, letter B. He always provides for us. I could go for hours on this, and some of you will thank me not to, but I'll list a couple of them from the Bible so that we understand it. He provides first for us a way to think. Philippians 2, verses 7 and 8. But made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. This is the mind that should be in us, Paul told the Philippians. Let this mind, he said in a few verses earlier that, let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus. Think of the way we should think about the world. Put your thinking caps on, if you will. The Beatitudes in Matthew 5 are the clearest expression of how we should think differently. Beginning in verse 3 of chapter 5, the Bible says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are they which do hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God. Blessed are they which persecuted for righteousness sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are ye when men shall revile you and persecute you and say, shall say all manner of evil against you falsely for my name's sake. Listen, if you just go through that list, we have to think differently. 
In verse 3, there's humility. In verse 4, there's repentance. In verse 5, there's self-control. In verse 6, there's a desire to do right. In verse 7, there's mercy and compassion. In verse number 8, there's integrity and purity. In verse number 9, there's gracious peacemakers. In verses number 10, there's faithfulness. In verses 11 and 12, there is a rejection that we will feel and know from the world because we're Christ's. You've got to think different because you are different. He doesn't just provide for us a way to think. He actually provides a pathway for us to live holy. Physically, we have an assurance from our Father. In this sense, the everlasting Father, Jesus Christ. In Matthew 6 and verse 30, he says, Wherefore, if God so clothe the grass of the field, which today is and tomorrow is cast into the oven, shall he not much more clothe you, O ye of little faith? Jesus is the one speaking these words. Therefore, take no thought, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or wherewithal shall we be clothed? For after all these things do the Gentiles seek. Those people that don't know Jesus, that's what they search for. You shouldn't. For your heavenly Father knoweth that ye have need of all these things. But seek ye first the kingdom of God and and His righteousness, and all these things shall be what? Added unto you. God, through Jesus Christ, will provide these. That's what a father does. What kind of dad would I be if I did not provide for my children? Not a very good one. Jesus Christ is perfect in that he is our progenitor. He is also our provider. He provides physically for us, but he also provides materially. Philippians 4.19, Paul writes, But my God shall supply all your need according to his riches and glory. The context of this passage is as we provide for God's work faithfully, God will take care of our needs materially. That's the context of Philippians 4 as he's writing to these Philippians who were filled with joy because they had participated in the gospel outreach and the result was God was providing for them. He also provides for us a way to live spiritually. Galatians 2 and verse 20, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Paul says, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live that life by the faith of the Son of God, or in the very fashion that Jesus lived, who loved me and gave himself for me. My pastor, when I was a kid, used to say this, live for God today and there'll be no regrets tomorrow. You want to be spiritually successful? Live without regrets. He said, well, I've got a lot. Well, good, in just a moment we'll pray and you can talk to God about the things that this year you've done that you say, man, I shouldn't have been been doing those things. He has provided for you a template. He has provided you the power and the enabling so that you can live as he lived. That's what a father does. Take the provisions that God has given in Jesus Christ and live by those provisions. As our everlasting Father, Jesus is our progenitor, our provider, and finally this morning, our protector. The Father is to protect His wife, His children, and they're all all the way concerned with their well-being. This is established over and again in Scripture and in nature. Jesus talks often of protecting and keeping us. The Holy Spirit sent from Jesus in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 13 and 14, seals us until the day of redemption. It is quite comforting to know that God cares for us and that He protects us. He tells us as much in John 10 and verse 27, My sheep hear my voice. 
And I know them, Jesus says, and they follow me. And I give unto them eternal life, and they shall never perish. Neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. My Father, which gave them me, is greater than all. And no man is able to pluck them out of my Father's hand. I and my Father are one. Mary knew that the child given to her by the Holy Ghost in Luke 1 and verse 35 would be to her a Savior, a protector of her soul. Thus her Magnificat, or her song of praise and adoration, is greatly rewarding to read on this Christmas Eve. Luke 1 and verse 46, the Bible says, Mary said, My soul doth magnify the Lord. My spirit hath rejoiced in God my Savior, for he hath regarded the lowest state of his handmaiden. For behold, from henceforth all generations shall call me blessed or happy, rejoicing, fulfilled. For he that is mighty hath done to me great things. Boy, talk about the protection. Talk about the overwhelming provision. And and holy is his name, and his mercy is on them that fear him from generation to generation. He hath showed strength with his arm, he hath hath scattered the proud in the imagination of their hearts. He hath put down the mighty from their seats and exalted them of low degree. He hath filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he hath sent empty away. He hath holpen or helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy, as he spake to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his seed forever. God will protect us. Because God has provided for us, because God is a father to us. That is who Jesus is. Mary understood that her child would be her progenitor, her protector, and her provider. So in closing this morning, Jesus is the everlasting father. To every soul that believes in him, he is the one that makes us the son of God. It is the eternal Son of God who created us, who saves us, and who secures us forever because He is eternal. He is our Father in that He brings us or originates us as new creatures, the Bible teaches. And so as we come to this last name, Jesus incarnate Emmanuel is wonderful. Jesus is counselor with purpose and plan. Jesus, the mighty God, helps us to overcome challenges and make choices that are right. Jesus, the Father everlasting to all those who believe in him. Before we close in prayer, I I put on the back of your notes a poem. I came across this poem a couple years ago. I've never used it in church. It's wonderful. It really is. It was written by Marv and Marbeth Rosenthal from a group called Zion's Help Ministries in Florida. Don't know much about them, but I know this poem is wonderful. The title of it is, Mary Had the Little Lamb. Not a little lamb, the little lamb. I won't read the scriptures, but I've provided all the scriptures that they provide in the poem. It's wonderful to read through. It's wonderful to read the verse and read the scripture if you want would be a wonderful exercise. Here's how it reads. Mary had the little lamb who lived before his birth. Self-existent son of God from heaven he came to earth. Mary had the little lamb. See him in yonder stall. Virgin born son of God to save man 
from the fall. Mary had the little lamb, obedient son of God. Everywhere the father led, his feet were sure to trod. Mary had the little lamb crucified on the tree, the rejected son of God. He died to set men free. Mary had the little lamb. Men placed him in the grave, thinking they were done with him. To death he was no slave. Mary had the little lamb. Ascended now is he. All work on earth is ended, our advocate to be. Mary had the little lamb. Mystery to behold. From the lamb of Calvary, a lion will unfold. When the day star comes again, of this be very sure. It won't be lamb-like silence, but with the lion's roar. What a great poem. What a truth on this Christmas Eve. Let's bow our heads in prayer as we close this morning.